0: Good morning. Well, here we are, and it's five days until Christmas, and most of you probably came in this room this morning excited and in a good mood. And unfortunately for you, we decided not to do a Christmas series this year and instead stay in the book of 1 Corinthians. And today, five days before Christmas, we find ourselves looking at the second half of chapter six, which deals with the topic of sexual immorality. So, Merry Christmas. There you go. Um, now, you may not be excited to look at this topic this morning. And to be frank, I wasn't all that excited when Chris asked me to teach on it. And yet, I believe that you and I desperately need to look at this topic and face it with fresh eyes and an open heart. And so, with that in mind, I'm going to pray because I need, I need the Lord's help this morning. I believe you need the Lord's help to, to give you fresh eyes and an open heart. And so. Let's ask him to join us. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care about every detail of our life. Father, we thank you that, that your laws and your prohibitions, they are, they are not killjoys. They're actually to further our joy and our satisfaction Lord, I just pray you would give each of us open hearts and fresh eyes to, to look at this difficult topic of sexual morality, and to face it, to confess, to, to walk into the light if we need to. Would you just give us grace this service to, to hear from you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, at the age of 19, I, I reconnected or recommitted my life to the Lord, and soon after that, I, I started to feel this call and a desire to become a pastor. Now, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure early on uh, if all of my motivations were pure. Uh, one of the things that really shaped me early on was I got my hands on, a, on the teachings from the very first Faith Walkers Conference. And as I heard these different guys teach and preach, and many of them, all of them actually, are, are very gifted communicators, it just, it stirred something up in me to want to do that. And I just had this overwhelming desire to, to become a pastor and to be able to teach, and Again, now I don't think all of my motivations were wrong. Some of them were. I think the part of me that wanted to be recognized and up on the stage and in the lights, that was. But uh, I still had this desire to be an effective communicator. Well, as the years went by, I started to hear through the grapevine, grapevine about this guy who used to be somewhat associated with our group of churches. And when people would mention him, they would say things like this. He's, he's one of the best communicators I've ever heard. He's Uh, You know, at such and such a conference, his one teaching, it changed my life. But then they would always mention, yeah, but he had an affair on his wife, and he's no longer in ministry. Well, as an immature Christian who desperately wanted to be in ministry, and who wanted to, to be an effective communicator, his story both intrigued me, and it terrified me. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I even became a little obsessed about it for a while, because I just couldn't understand... How a guy who seemingly had everything, who was living his dream, who was being used by God, could fall so tragically. Well, today in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are going to see how this church, the Corinthian church, how they themselves were struggling in this area of sexual immorality. And we're going to see that their primary misunderstanding, they misunderstood a few things, but the primary thing was they misunderstood the use of our physical bodies. And therefore, they misunderstood the danger and the consequences of sexual immorality. And so, if you have a Bible, if you brought one, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll read verses 12 through 20. Uh, if you're using one of our Pew Bibles, that's page 955. So, starting in verse 12 All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now before we dig into this passage, I just want to say up front that if I come across a little bit passionate this morning or a little bit strong, I just want you to know that it's not coming from a place of self-righteousness or from a place of condemnation. I've had my own struggles in this area throughout my life. So I'm far from being perfect. But the reason that I am passionate about this topic is because by far the most discouraging thing that I have found from being in ministry is seeing how sin ruins people's lives and how particularly this area of sexual sin, how it ruins and devastates lives. And therefore, my heart today, and I believe the Lord's heart, is to wake some people up to the seriousness of this sin. So as we go through this passage, if you're an outline person, here's your outline. We're going to see three spiritual realities from the text and then we're going to finish with two commands and try to apply them. So the first spiritual reality that we see from this passage is this. God cares about your body and therefore he cares what you do with your body. Look back down at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything I'm, I've missed this uh, I've misunderstood this passage to some degree and even chapter 7 until I actually slowed down and, and dug into it when it says there all things are lawful for me if you look down at your Bible it's actually in quotation marks and that is because this was a saying or a slogan that was going around the Corinthian church it was a common phrase that they were using to justify their actions Now some people think that this slogan was actually taken from the Apostle Paul himself or that it was some sort of adaption from his teachings. You know, perhaps they had developed it based on Paul's teachings about the grace of God and about the freedom that we now have in Christ. But look what Paul does here. He doesn't outright deny this phrase or slogan, but he does qualify it. And he qualifies it to such such an extent to almost negate it. So again, the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. But Paul comes back with, yeah, but not all things are helpful. They again say, all things are lawful for me. But Paul says, yeah, but not if you're dominated or enslaved by them. And then look at verse 13. It's also in quotations. So this is apparently another saying or slogan that was going around. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then that is followed with, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now scholars are a little... Uh, unclear if the last part of that is Paul's rebuttal, or if that's actually part of the slogan. So in other words, was the Corinthian slogan, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other? Or was there saying, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and then Paul comes in as a qualifier and says, and God will destroy both one and the other? I'm not sure. I mean, they haven't figured it out, so I don't think I'm going to figure it out for you today, but in some ways it doesn't really matter. You see, on the surface, these two slogans or sayings, they may seem very random, but they're actually not. They are connected. And what Paul's doing here is he's forming a very tight argument against the Corinthians' position, against their view of the human body. You see, the Corinthians, they were deeply influenced by Greek culture, which pitted the physical against the spiritual, which essentially means that they viewed the physical body as being unimportant or irredeemable. And they're thinking the only thing that really mattered was your mind and your spirit. And here, Paul is absolutely refuting this idea. Look back at the end of 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and He will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. You see, what was happening in this church was that the Corinthians were continuing to live like their pagan culture. And in the city of Corinth and in their culture, it was perfectly normal and acceptable to have sex with prostitutes. In fact, one commentary I read said it was customary for people to have prostitutes uh, at their house for when they hosted a dinner party. And so the idea was you'd have dinner with your friends and then you guys would have sex with prostitutes as after-dinner entertainment. I don't know what you guys do when you host dinner party. We usually play a board game or watch TV or something, but apparently this is what they were doing. Now that may sound crazy to us, but I think if you really think about it, our culture is not that far from that standard. But herein lies the Corinthian thinking. The body is unimportant. It's a necessary evil, if you will. So when it gets hungry, you feed it. When it desires sex, you fulfill it. So in the same way, just like food is for the stomach, sexual urges are a necessary evil. Now the other weird thing culturally in their context was that uh, they really, they, they had a negative view of sex within marriage. I mean really, they only viewed sex within marriage as a means to procreate. And so if you wanted sex for just pleasure or recreational reasons, then culturally you would go to a prostitute. So what Paul is doing here is he's saying this, no, Corinthians, you are wrong. The body is not unimportant. In fact, it's so important that God raised Jesus's physical body and he's going to raise your physical body as well. And so because God cares about your body, he cares immensely what you do with it. Your body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So that's the first spiritual reality we see out of this passage. The second is this, God designs sex, and therefore, when it is misused, there are devastating consequences. Now listen, this is an important point to get because it helps us make sense, it helps us understand God's prohibitions and his boundaries in relation to sex and our sexuality. And so by way of analogy, what, what is this that I'm holding up here? Well, you probably can't tell. It's an iPhone, uh, but it's a smartphone. And you know, smartphones, nobody answered, by the way. What's up with that? Did you know I was going to just keep rolling or something? But anyway, I'm disappointed, but I'll get over it. Um, It's an iPhone. It's a smartphone. And they're amazing when it comes to communication and technology. But if I take this iPhone and I try to hammer a nail into the wall, what's going to happen? I'm going to probably end up with a broken iPhone, and that is because that's not what an iPhone was designed to do. And in the same way, God's prohibitions or His boundaries on your sex life, they are not some petty Victorian taboo. No, they are the very wisdom from the one who created us and who created and invented sex. Look back down in verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You see, having sex with a prostitute, cheating on your spouse, looking at pornography, sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend... These things are wrong because they misuse and they violate the way that God designed sex to work and to function. And so again, it would be like me trying to hammer a nail with my iPhone. It doesn't work and in the end, something's going to get broke. The Bible teaches that when we have sex or when we engage in sexual activity, that something happens in that process that unites us to that person in such a way that we become one flesh with them. And on this point, I really like what Tim Keller says here. He says this, Clearly, one flesh means something different to Paul than mere sexual union. Or Paul would be reciting a mere tautology. Don't you know that when you have physical union with a prostitute, you are having physical union with a prostitute? Obviously, Paul understands becoming one flesh here to mean becoming one person. One flesh refers to the physical union of a man and a woman at all levels of their lives. Paul then is decrying the monstrosity of physical oneness without all of the other kinds of oneness that every sex act should mirror. So in other words, the reason that God restricts sex between a man and a woman in marriage is because every sex act is supposed to be a uniting and bonding act. And therefore it is damaging to give your body over to someone else to whom you will not also commit your whole life. You see, sex involves the body, but it also involves our minds and our souls. And therefore, you cannot disconnect your spiritual life from physical sex. So again, Paul's saying, No, Corinthians, having sex is not like eating food. It is holy and it is utterly different. And you and I in Limworth Road Church and people in this building... When we misuse sex and our sexuality, when we engage in those things outside of God's designed boundaries, we're setting ourselves up for devastating consequences. Now maybe some of you disagree with that statement and that premise. I realize this is very counterculture, cultural But I think that the statistics are on my side. You know, our culture is more sexually loose and free than it has been And yet it seems like nobody is having fulfilling sex. I mean, just look at the cover of most magazines. On second thought, do not look at the cover of most magazines. (laughs) Just avoid that whole aisle at the grocery store, you know, go around. But if you would happen to stumble upon the cover of most magazines, what you would find is they're full of articles trying to give advice on how to have better sex, how to have more satisfying sex. And what they fail to understand is that technique really has nothing to do with it. Are you guys tracking with me when I use the word technique? (laughs) Here's what our culture fails to understand. The best sex that you can ever have has little to do with technique. No, the best sex that you can have is guilt-free, soul-satisfying sex. And that kind of sex can only be found in a relationship between a man and a woman in Christian marriage. And the reason that is true is that's because that's how God designed it to work. And the problem is this. Our culture, and when I say our culture, I mean you and I as well, we're, we're guilty of this too. We have made sex into an idol. And here's the thing. Sometime, sometimes idols are really bad things. But most of the time, idols are good things that we turn into ultimate things. And therefore, they become bad things. Sex in and of itself is a wonderful, beautiful, amazing gift of God. However, when it is taken out of its designed context or even elevated to a place that it was never supposed to be, it will produce devastating consequences. And that is because all idolatry is devastating to the human heart. You know, in preparation for this teaching, I, I read part of a book called Porn Free. And it's actually written by one of my neighbors who does some counseling at Zenos. And in his book, Brian Gardner says this, Here then is the essence of idolatry. Man has decided to throw off God's loving leadership, refusing to honor him as the one deserving of our worship. Instead, he turns to the creation that God made to find meaning and fulfillment. Man chose to worship the gift rather than the giver. And as a result, man turned to one of God's greatest gifts, sex, and he made it an idol. If sex is an idol for us, we turn from God as the one who provides us meaning, and we turn to sensuality to derive our meaning, validation, and fulfillment. Ironically, we won't find any of those things in sex. The free-loving generation of the 60s is today characterized by unprecedented divorce and broken relationships, Younger generations seem to be unsatisfied with all of the sex that they are having. We foolishly believe that if we can just get the formula right, everything will be great. Instead, disappointment lurks around every corner. In the midst of all of this pursuit of sexual fulfillment, the Bible reminds us that idols always disappoint. They can never fulfill us the way that God can. You know, before my wife and I got married, we, we did struggle at some level to remain pure in regards to our relationship. Uh, but we did manage to not have sex before we got married. And, and I remember thinking while we were dating, and even in some ways my whole life, which this is really embarrassing, by the way, um, I remember thinking and even praying, Lord, please don't come back before I get married and am able to have sex. <laughs> and I would even imagine these worst-case scenarios in which My wife was walking down the aisle, and she would get about halfway, and then the sky would split open, and Christ would come down, and I'd be like, no, couldn't you have waited a day? I just need a day. Well, as you can tell, that didn't happen. I've been married for eight years, but, you know, we did get married, and our wedding night, uh, which was awesome, by the way, but afterwards, you probably didn't need to know that, but... After that night, I remember feeling relieved and even in some way set free. Because what I realized was this, that, yeah, sex, it is great, it is amazing, but it is not God. God is God, and He alone is able to fully satisfy the human heart. Let's move on to that last spiritual reality that we see in the passage, and that's this. God, through the gospel, has given us a new identity, And therefore, we should live and act differently. I don't know if you've picked up on this as we've gone through this passage, but Paul keeps repeating over and over again the phrase, do you not know? And in verse 19, he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, Corinthians, wake up. You are not who you used to be. You are not the same as the rest of your pagan culture. No, something has dramatically happened to you. You have been changed. You have a new identity. And as part of that new identity, you now have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Yes, the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God He used to live in a temple back in Jerusalem, but that has all changed now. He is now living inside of you. And that's why it says in verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And this is a staggering truth. What this means is this, that when we commit sexual immorality, we are not doing it alone. No, we are taking the Holy Spirit along with us. You Christian, you you may be thinking that you're looking at pornography isn't hurting anyone because it's done in private and no one knows. But God the Holy Spirit knows. He sees because you are taking Him with you. And it grieves Him. And it should grieve you as well. Which, by the way, if I had more time to to go into it, I would go into all the ways in which pornography actually hurts and damages everyone involved, from the viewer to the porn actresses themselves. In fact, I, I became emotional and even almost got sick in my office as I read from the book Porn Free, a first-hand account um, from a porn actress who described all of the physical and emotional pain that she experienced through the porn industry. You now, you may sit there and you may lie to yourself and say, no, they enjoy it, they get paid well to do it, but that is not true. This is modern-day slavery and It's disgusting. And brothers and sisters, God, He wants more for us, and He has more for us. And that is why He has given you a new identity, and He has put Your Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit in you. Turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 987. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul writes this. not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives. His Holy Spirit to you. We are to abstain from sexual morality because that is not God's will for His children. We are to control our bodies and we are able to control our bodies because we no longer live like the Gentiles who don't know God. God has given us a new identity and because of that, some, God has something better for His children. He has not called us for impurity but for holiness. Now, I don't know how this is hitting most of you here today. Maybe some of you are already feeling overwhelmed with guilt and shame. Maybe some of you still feel unconvinced of the necessity of avoiding sexual immorality. But I want us to flip back to 1 Corinthians and look at the end of verse 19. Paul says this, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your new identity in Christ, if you're a Christian today, your new identity in Christ, it did not come free and it did not come cheap. It was purchased at a very high price. The Son of God, He came to this earth, He he left the glories of heaven and He put on human flesh, which is what we're going to celebrate five days from now. And He came and put on human flesh for one reason, to purchase you, to buy back your freedom, to free you from sin and from death. So you, Christian, in light of that, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. The question now becomes, now what? The now what is this, glorify God in your body. So in closing here, let's finish by looking at the two commands in this passage and try to apply them. We've read through nine verses, and yet there are only two tiny little commands. Flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your body. Let's start with the second command first, glorify God in your body. How might we obey and put into practice this command? Well, I think the first and most practical way we can do this is by obeying the first command, flee sexual immorality. You see, when we live sexually pure lives, we honor God with our bodies. Again, the Corinthians, they they didn't understand this. They failed to understand that our bodies and what we do with them matter to God. You see, you can either dishonor God by engaging in sexual immorality, or you can honor Him, you can glorify Him by abstaining from it. You see, you have to live for more than just physical pleasure, because in the end, it will only let you down. You were made, God designed human beings to glorify Him, and if you are not glorifying God, you are missing out on life itself. And one of the primary marks of a growing, maturing Christian which again is what this series is all about, moving on to maturity, one of the primary marks is this, a growing desire to glorify God, so much so that it changes the way that you think, and it changes the way that you live. So if the way we glorify God is fleeing sexual immorality, let's look at that command and try to apply it. You know, almost certainly when Paul wrote this command, he had in mind the story of Joseph. And in in the book of Genesis, we read about Joseph and and we find out that he's in a tricky situation. He's working in the house of Potiphar. And it tells us that in that passage that Joseph himself was uh, handsome in form and in appearance. So I think that means that he was good looking and he had a six pack. And so it tells us that Potiphar's wife cast her eye on Joseph. And, it keeps, and and in that passage she keeps over and over again saying to him, sleep with me. And he keeps telling her No. Well, one day she gets kind of fed up and she just like grabs his coat and is like, sleep with me. And he's like, ah, and he like takes off running and she's left there holding his coat. Well, if you know the story, she in that moment then cries out and accuses him of raping her and he ends up going to jail. Now we don't have time to get into it, but the point is this, Joseph actually physically fled sexual immorality. Like he put on his running shoes and he ran and got away from it. And I think Paul here, in this command, is trying to get us to do the same. Flee. Run for your life. <clears throat> you know, I started this teaching out with a story of a pastor who cheated on his wife and who in the process lost everything. And when I was in the midst of being obsessed with his story, <clears throat> excuse me, I stumbled upon an audio clip I found online of him apologizing to a group of people. And in in that audio, he describes what happened, what led to him having an affair. And then at the end, he describes what have been some of the consequences of his actions. When I first listened to it probably 10 years ago, it freaked me out. It scared me to death because I realized this. I am no better than this man. I am perfectly capable of doing the same thing. And I also realized this. You know, this guy didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I'll ruin my life today. No, it was a series of small compromises of not fleeing when he needed to, which eventually led to him sleeping with someone who was not his wife. And I've often gone back to his story, and even this week I found it again online, and the reason I go back to it is because it helps me. It wakes me up. It, It helps me flee sexual immorality. I mean, this guy really lost everything. In fact, I want to read to you a little bit of what he said in that apology. He said this, I was living my dream. I was living my passion of what I wanted to do. I was in ministry, serving God, getting paid to build the kingdom of God. People were getting baptized. And from the ministry standpoint, I should have been delighted. And then he pauses. He says, it was awful. It is awful. I was getting to live my passion and my dream, and I have disqualified myself. I can't do it. I am separated from my wife, and there's a very real chance that I will not be married after this. I am unemployed, and I haven't worked in four months. This has cost us our entire life savings. I mean, treatment alone has cost us $40,000. Our kids have been traumatized by all of this. I had to sit in a room and look my kids in the eyes and say, Kids, I cheated on your mom. You know, I've been having sex with another woman. This part is so sobering for me, and it, it really scares me. He said this, My kids are so upset because they knew something was wrong. They knew something was coming. And when we asked them later, what did you think dad was going to say? They said, well, we thought either mom is pregnant or dad has cancer. It never entered their mind that it could be this and that broke my heart. Because I just want my kids to respect me. I want my friends to respect me. And I have lost my integrity. And I've lost my self-respect. I've lost everything. This has cost me everything. And that, my friends, is very sobering and is very motivating to me to flee sexual immorality, and I hope it is for you. This is not a game, and even if you're not in ministry, the stakes and the consequences are still very high. You may not lose your job if if you fall into uh, an affair or if you're addicted to pornography. You may not lose your job, but you might lose your family. You might lose your friends. You see, just like for Joseph, fleeing may have some consequences. His consequences, he ended up in jail for a crime he didn't commit. Maybe fleeing for you means you can't own a computer or a smartphone. You know, maybe for some of you, the most godly thing you could do today is to go to the cell phone store and get a flip phone. Maybe fleeing for you means you need to have a tough conversation with your spouse or with your parents. Maybe fleeing for you means you need to get rid of Facebook or get off Instagram. Maybe it means you need to stop going to the gym. It may mean you need to break up with that girlfriend or boyfriend. It may mean you need to get a new job to get away from that coworker who's tempting you. I don't know what it is that you need to do in order to flee, but I just want to beg you to do it. Because I know this. I can guarantee that Joseph did not regret on his deathbed that he didn't sleep with Potiphar's wife. But in contrast, I would bet that King David forever regretted the day that he slept with Bathsheba. He probably always wished he could go back and just get off the roof and go to bed. Now I realize in a room of this size that we are all over the map in here as it relates to this topic. For some of you, today was a painful reminder of failures from your past. For others who are presently struggling, I hope today was a wake-up call. But regardless of this, All of us in this room at some level are broken and have sinned in this area. We are all desperately in need of the grace of God. And fortunately for you and fortunately for me, He has more than enough grace for us. As we looked at earlier, Jesus Christ has bought us. He has ransomed us and we are forever forgiven in Him. No matter how we have failed in this area. Look, we... Chris covered this last week, but look at verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality. But then look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus Christ today, you have been justified. The gavel has been brought down in the courtroom and you have been declared not guilty. And because of that, you have been forgiven in Christ's righteousness. The very righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imparted. ...and imputed to you. So breathe in that grace this morning... ...and rest in that amazing truth. Now if you're here today and you're not a Christian... ...verse 9 says very clearly... ...that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know I didn't read the whole list... ...he goes on to list a bunch of sins... ...but every human being on the face of the earth... ...is guilty of something from that list. And so unless you have been forgiven... ...unless you have been justified you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so I just want to beg you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you can do that today. You can receive the forgiveness that He has purchased for you. If you would like to come down, I'll be down here after the service. There'll be members of our prayer team or you can check on um, on our Connect card that you would like some more information. But I want to beg you to do it. Let's pray. Father, we are in desperate need of Your grace and Your mercy in our lives. God, we are all every day being bombarded with sexual images, with temptations. God, our culture thinks that we are foolish with our, with our beliefs, with trying to stay within Your boundaries. And yet, Lord, if they were honest for a second, they would realize the wisdom and the glory of, of your boundaries on sexuality. And I pray you would help us today who are struggling to believe your word in this area. I pray you would help us to to see with fresh eyes and an open heart your wisdom and your revision for us in this area. God, for those today who today was a painful reminder of some failed uh, areas in their past, Lord, I just pray you'd wash over them with your grace. Lord, I pray that they would uh, be able to have hope to move forward to know that, Christ, you can free them and, 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 and heal them in this area of brokenness. Lord Jesus, I just pray as we go on, you would help us today to be reminded of who you are, of what you have done for us, and that we'd rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen.